Hello and welcome to Season 4 Power Talk. Power Talks are short, powerful interviews from leading youth violence experts, spreading new ideas and sharing best practice. For more information on the work our charity Power the Fight does and to discover how you can help empower communities to end youth violence, please visit www.powerthefight.org.uk. In today's episode, we are joined once again by Professor Carleen Furman. She joined us in season one to speak on contextual safeguarding, and today we have contextual safeguarding part two. You have the honour of being the only person who's appeared on Power Talks twice. Um, your original Power Talk on contextual safeguarding is the most watched out of all three seasons. So no pressure to make this one as good. (laughs) Uh, For those who do not know you, please introduce yourself and what you do, who Um, you are, what you're about, what you're into. I'm Carleen Furman and I'm Professor of Social Work at Durham University, where I lead the Contextual Safeguarding Research Programme. Wow, and in the three years since we first did Power Talk, you became a professor. Mm-hmm. Um, just a little thing, you know, piece of cake, knock that out. Um, and the Contextual Safeguarding Network has grown so big, you shifted the universities and all that type of stuff. Um, just in case this, I mean, everybody knows who you are, but just in case people don't know what Contextual Safeguarding is, just in a few sentences, tell us what Contextual Safeguarding is, um, why, did you decide to run with this? And yeah, tell us some of the impact it's, it's made. Okay, so contextual safeguarding is an approach and not a model. This is, impo- this is important, thing. isn't it? Because you, you get very upset when people call it a model. Yeah. Um, and I want to know why, because isn't, isn't a framework and a model the same thing? No, it's a framework and an approach because it does actually look, the nuts and bolts look different wherever it's used because right. it's contextual, right? Oh. If it's the context in which... It happens. So it's an approach to um, keeping young people safe when they're at risk of harm outside of their family homes, particularly focused on social work, but also involves a range of other agencies. And it basically asks those agencies to assess the context where a young person is at risk and not just the ability of their parents to keep them safe. And the reason why we do that is because it's common sense, but but also because our child protection systems were designed on an understanding that if something's going wrong for a young person, generally you look at what their parents are doing and you assess the capacity of their parents to protect them and you focus on building the capacity of their parents to keep them safe. But we know when young people experience some kinds of harm, like exploitation or um, violence between peers, that just looking at parents won't understand, won't help us understand how unsafe they are and also won't be necessarily the route to keeping them safe in the future. So you're effectively widening the lens mm-hmm. of safeguarding, yep. looking at a young person's context, taking lots of different elements mm-hmm. of that young person's life um, and seeing how that feeds into where they are in the safeguarding context. Yeah, absolutely. And there are other approaches that have done that before. I guess the difference with contextual safeguarding is that we don't just want to see a child in their context. We want to actually change the context itself. So if we know a young person is unsafe in the park, we don't 
we don't want to say to them stop spending time in the park. Mm. We want to understand what's going on in that park and then intervene in a way that creates safety there. So when we first in when we when we first when I first interviewed you for Power Talk, I think it I think it was 2018, even though it came out in 2019. I think it was 2018. <clears throat> so we're talking almost four years. Yeah. What has changed in that time with this framework and approach? Um What's what's changed? What have you been up to? How has it um, adapt adapted? Um, has it evolved? And you also done two. Uh, the, I think you had one book out at that point. Yeah. You got a second book, and I'm sure there's multiple other things coming up. But what is what's happened in those four years with this approach? So since the first power talk, we were we are actually you interviewed me in the offices of Hackney Children's Services because that's where we were running our first testing of contextual safeguarding, and since then. We've tested in nine other localities across England and Wales, and we have an emergent test site in Scotland. So we've got a much better understanding now of how it looks in different areas and what's possible. Yeah. And through doing that work, we've come to understand, I guess, what some of the opportunities are with contextual safeguarding and what some of the challenges are that we hadn't foreseen. I think a key one for us has been around trying to understand the difference between um, building relationships of trust with young people in the context where they spend their time and building relationships of surveillance over young people in the context where they spend their time. And my um, colleagues, Jenny Lloyd and Lauren Rowe, led the development of a framework to help us explore that called Watching Over or Working With. So what we found in a number of our test sites where they were watching over young people, but they weren't working alongside them. So they might be collecting data and sharing information about those young people and where they were spending their time. They might be um, training lots of people to spot the signs of exploitation. And then they're all watching those young people and making phone calls. But no one's actually talking to those young people. No one's actually building relationships where young people can then make the decision about whether or not they want to seek help or talk to somebody. Mm. So we've had to really emphasize the importance of relationships in the contextual safeguarding approach um, and the importance of working alongside young people and families and their wider communities rather than doing to them, particularly doing to them by statutory agencies like social work and policing. So this element which probably was always there, but you've had to emphasize it a bit more, is very much how do you create co-production and co-design participation in this framework? Um, how easy has that been to to emphasize and get people to understand? It's, it's varied, to be honest, dependent on the cultures of the organizations that we're working in and how comfortable they are with doing that work more generally. We've seen some incredible um, approaches developing test sites. In one of our sites, they ran um, an intervention over a summer on a beach location where young people were being exposed to harm, mainly because all the over 18 establishments had closed due to COVID. And so there was a lot of adults and children mixing in the beach area without any kind of supervision. And so youth workers and social workers went down there, assessed young people's needs, um, explored some of the substance use issues that were going on, but also identified cafes where young people could go to if they felt unsafe and wanted a phone to be picked up or for support. They did leaflet drops with residents to try to challenge how they were viewing young people. Um, And they worked with those young people to work out why they were on the beach and how they could be there safely. And that was very organic social workers really enjoyed it they felt confident there's other areas where we've seen struggle to kind of leave the desk and 
leave the computer and actually go and have conversations with young people. And to be honest, in those areas, they do tend to, to still view some of these issues as crime issues first and child welfare issues right. second. So, um, you know, I think we've seen the blurring of boundaries between our eight, between our organisations. Um, I was talking to some social workers last week and I said to them, you know, there's a big difference between what social workers will do in terms of gathering information to assess what a young person needs and then providing support to building intelligence. Social workers are not in the business or should not be in the business of intelligence gathering. That's not in their remit. But we've seen the blurring of those boundaries in some areas and they tend to be areas that rely on data to tell them what young people need rather than relationships um, to tell them what young people need. Why? <clears throat> Why do we see that blurring? We've, particularly, that's not what people get into social work for, but that, that blurring, I can imagine, very frustrating for the social worker, but why are we seeing that? I think because ultimately there are elements of these issues, um, violence between young people, sexual exploitation, criminal exploitation, that are crimes. And social workers are therefore dipping their toes into issues that ultimately are crimes as well as harms. We want them to assess young people's risk of harm and support those young people. But in doing that, they may identify criminal offences. They may identify young people that are committing criminal offences as well as being harmed. And those tensions need surfacing and talking about, particularly if you want to widen who does this work to business owners and youth workers and churches and others to support young people who may be being criminally exploited to transport drugs around the country. Well, what are you asking of those people and um we need to have some difficult conversations i think in the coming years so that we don't set people up to be in yep. ethically challenging situations so as you're aware the work that a lot of the work that we do uh, power of fight we we go into schools with our therapeutic intervention for peace project or program uh it's culturally sensitive co-production co-designed approach uh to working with in a, I suppose in a whole systems approach of teachers, young people, and parents and carers uh, to create this culturally sensitive therapy. Um, and for us, that is because one of the things off the back of your work is the widening the context of where harm is. Um, I know that you have been doing a lot of work in schools beyond referrals. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that um, because I think the trans transitioning into schools and having that focus is is brilliant but just break that down and what it is sure so beyond referrals tries to kind of do what it says on the tin which is think how do you work with an organization like a school so that their safeguarding policy is more than referring children who are at risk to other agencies you know it's not you don't safeguard a child simply by identifying that they're in need and then telling a social worker that you need support there's other things that make up a school environment that will mean a young person is safe or unsafe while they were in your care in the school or making their journey to or from school. So we worked with schools um, now since 2019 um, to develop a self-assessment framework where they could assess themselves and the extent to which we could identify levers in the school that create safety for young people or barriers within the school that might undermine safety for young people. And then schools can action plan around that. And a lot of that is collaborative work with young people, things like heat mapping the school, where are their red zones, amber zones, green zones where they feel unsafe neutral and safe and doing that on the school journey as well and we saw in one of our 
Contextual safeguarding sites attest of that. And the locations that teachers thought young people felt unsafe in were completely different to the locations that young people actually mapped that they felt unsafe in, just completely different. Hmm. And so they're now going to run a regular school summit with those activities in the local authority to try to proactively respond to young people's needs in that way. And they've got information that they wouldn't have got if they just said to young people, tell us where, where, you, where you feel worried. So there are techniques you can use to have more contextually informed uh, conversations with young people. And we started to take that work from schools and think about other universal settings where young people spend their time, like youth clubs, sports clubs, faith organisations, um, that will also bring young people together, not because they're being exploited, not because they're at risk of harm, but in bringing them together, challenges might develop in the setting or as young people travel to or from the setting. And we would ask those organisations to also think about how they safeguard those young people beyond referring them into statutory organisation. But actually, are you satisfied that your organisation is creating a culture of equality, protection and safety for young people? Yeah. And what are some of the findings? And that's kind of early days, right? But it'd be interesting just to hear some of the key findings from what you've done so far? Well, unsurprisingly, relationships, again, uh, being really key, uh, young people's ability to access a trusted adult um, at a time and place that suits them. Um, so not having one person in the organisation that you go to if you want to report something. And we found that in schools. We've also found that in um, in other settings as well. In other settings, though, we've also found that the relationship with other organisations is complicated. How a youth club relates to a multi-agency partnership can build trust with young people because it might mean they can act as a conduit for those young people to access other services. But it might undermine trust if young people think everything I tell you, you're going to go off and you're going to tell this person, that person. So there's a real balancing act to be struck because ultimately those settings can provide a real haven of safety for young people. And we don't want to undermine that by seeing those organisations as another arm of statutory bodies that are already overly, arguably overly monitoring and surveying young people rather than working alongside them so we're going to be publishing new resources um in 2022 mm. for those organizations to self-assess themselves like we have done for schools already yeah. and see this part of the start of the journey to thinking about how we create safe places for young people in a range of organizations i mean it's really without trying to <laughs> minimize the work that you're doing it feels so much like you said common sense mm -hmm. that building trust in relationships working out where the safe spaces are in schools, the teacher's opinion, as opposed to the young person's opinion, um, building those interpersonal relationships is such a necessary thing, mm -hmm. which hopefully will help young people flourish, but it doesn't feel like it's a priority. And I get it. I mean, some of the work that we've had to do with, with schools and teachers, particularly post-COVID, there's levels of stress and management of, of a school setting has, has changed. But some of this stuff just feels basic for me. When you talk to the teachers about your findings and you're there, is there kind of like an enthusiasm to take this on? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've had really amazing buy-in from educationalists. In fact, teachers and those that work in schools are second um, highest member on our virtual network after social workers. So we've always had really good buy-in from schools and the Association of School and College Leaders have done a lot to promote contextual safeguarding in the education sector. I think their challenge back to us has been regulation, inspection, 
and government policy. Yes. To give you an example, some language in government policy suggests we should adopt a zero tolerance approach to sexual abuse and harassment within schools between young people. And our research suggests that zero tolerance policies can do more harm than good. And schools are also aware of this when we talk to them about it, but they don't know how to manage that space between what the evidence says and what policy is asking mm. of them. Because we know, for starters, zero tolerance policies really just responsibilise young people for the decisions that they make of others' future. If you're in a school and you know that if I tell a teacher that this boy has, I don't know, lifted my skirt as I walk through the corridor, he's going to get excluded. The decision's then on me. Do I want him to be excluded? Because this school's got a zero tolerance approach. The decision is not on the school. The decision is on me because there's no nuance. There's no discussion. There's no proportionality. So you, you are the victim, but you're also the person who's now got this pressure yeah. to, to potentially direct someone else's school career from that moment on. Absolutely. And or impact. Or, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And when we've spoken to young people, they've said, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't mm. say anything because, you know, the punishment for them is this, but the punishment for me of doing that to them will outlive anything. You know, there's all these, and also, so when we've been in those schools, they said, oh, no, we adopted a zero tolerance approach and now we've seen a real reduction in rates of sexual harassment. And we're like, no, you've oh, yeah. not. You've seen a reduction in disclosures of sexual harassment. Wow. So we're not saying obviously that you tolerate it the opposite is not true we're not saying you therefore tolerate it what we're saying is you need a proportional effective response to those issues not a sledgehammer because there are a range of harms that are going to occur in a school environment and it's the role of teachers pastoral staff and partners to work out what's best on a case-by-case -case basis and listen to what young people want um rather than taking this kind of sledgehammer approach the other issue with zero tolerance is it disproportionately affects black children children who are already open to children's social care and children with learning disabilities we know any type of punitive approach will have a disproportionate impact on some children and yeah. not others so we have to be very careful if we take a more intersectional lens to and um, these types of policies that we don't think we're addressing one harm like sexual harassment in schools and then just creating another harm like disproportionate exclusions of certain groups of young people and this policy versus evidence piece i mean in a school context there's so many examples i can think of let's for example just take school exclusions um and the zero tolerance often happens there <laughs> even if the evidence particularly with black and brown young people can lead to this school to prison pipeline um so the evidence is like we don't want to be doing that obviously scotland have taken that on board but yet in this in england and wales we we we're yet to the policies there but the evidence and that and that is fascinating and i find it again it's it's common sense it's common but um yeah and i suppose this leads me on to kind of the final part really which is obviously you've been involved with Power to Fight from the beginning and you know what our remit is and our ultimate aim is to see the reduction of, of violence which affects young, young people. Um, we've seen in the London context, 30 young people unfortunately lose their lives um, to violence. Uh, in 2021, we know that across the UK, even if the the ethnic makeup might look different. It's a it's a dominant culture which is which is happening. 
suppose this is a bit of a wider question, but you are a professor, so you know I'm sure you, you, you're not pigeonholed to just what you do at Durham. But if you were to kind of look at this issue and think what needs to happen to quiet and reduce this, what I would call a pandemic, empower communities, what type of things would you 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 you'd attempt to put in place, whether that's policy mm-hmm. or in any other way? Um, I would resource, I would increase resourcing into welfare-based responses first and decrease resourcing into sanction-based and criminal justice responses um, because we know that we need to have young people on side, their needs must be met, they need to feel supported um, in a range of ways. So I'd be investing in social care and community organisations and community organising, parent support groups and a range of activities that meet young people where they are at um, in order to support them at whatever time of day they they require that support. Whereas we tend to focus on these issues as criminal justice issues first, and that is always going to be a mistake. It's a mistake because that's a tiny proportion of the issue is the crime. There's structural drivers, contextual drivers, familial drivers, individual drivers. They all require responses through a welfare-based approach, not just the crime that happens Mm. at the end. And that's where we tend to focus our, our time and energy. But also, I'm kind of bored of people asking, what do we need to do about it? Because we already know, right? You've already said, we already know. You're boring me. This is the end of the podcast. (laughs) It's boring in the sense that we already know, but what we don't do is bring it together into a strategic approach because a lot of this is highly political. So this person wants to fund this, this person wants to fund that. If you look in any local area that has a violence reduction unit, they'll be funding interventions. Those interventions will rarely have been informed by what the local authority thinks is required for the children they're supporting. So they're assessing young people at risk of exploitation. They're identifying what those young people need. They can't access the services those young people need, but the violence reduction units commissioned a load of, you know, knife crime awareness programmes or something, which none of those young people need because they're well aware of what a knife does. Mm. But they could do with um, educational psychologists supporting them, for example. Yeah, yeah or some support around trauma or friendship group interventions or bystander support. And those things haven't been commissioned. So we, I'm not going to say we've got enough money because we know this work is heavily under-resourced, but what's even more annoying is where we do have money. It's all, it's often channeled into the wrong places. It's channeled into criminal justice responses. It's channeled into individual behavior change programs and it is disorganized in its um, dissemination, which means that people have pockets of intervention, but they're not coordinated. They're mm. not pulled together. Yeah, no, and, I, and I think that is a well thought out response. Um, I don't think it's boring. Because I think it's really important that that joining of the dots, connecting with different institutions, co-production, co-design, um, as I always say, the air and the ground engagement, how do they get closer? How do you get a, a, that community empowerment conversation going? You're right, it is totally under-resourced. Um, and yeah, where do we actually get the the views and, and the wants of, of the community that we often talk about? So yeah, no, that's, that's brilliant. Well, listen, I think, I mean... 
what you said there, oh, I could talk to you. We've not gone into particular things that you're into and outside of contextual safeguarding. <laughs> maybe that's another podcast. Yeah, maybe so. Um, but I want to say thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The work that you're doing, uh, the pioneering work that you're doing, um, how it's spreading. I think it's fantastic. And um, thank you for supporting Power to Fight. Happy to. And uh, yeah, brilliant.